0: Welcome. You're listening to the podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, well, good morning again, as Phil said, Pastor Phil. I'm um, so glad that you're with us this morning. I just want to say again that if there's anything that we can help you with, if there's anything that uh, you're confused by, um, then please let Phil know and he'll clear things up for you this morning. So I want to volunteer him for that. Um, This is the third Sunday in Advent, so this morning the third of the four names given through the prophet Isaiah to describe the coming Messiah. That name in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, we read it already, is Everlasting Father. So the Messiah will be a a child born to us who will be to us as an everlasting father. I I suppose that many of us are, um, if we've grown up in church, are at least accustomed to thinking about God as Father or you've heard us talk about God the Father. It may sound uh, strange to think about Jesus as Father. And so just to clarify here for a moment, when Isaiah uses that name, he's not talking about the Trinity. He's not talking about the Messiah's role within the Godhead. He's talking about the character of the coming Messiah and how that Messiah will relate to us. So his heart, his work, how he will come for us and be a pattern for us of divine fatherhood. For example, in John's Gospel, when, um, when one of the disciples named Philip, he goes to Jesus, this is in chapter 14, and he asks Jesus, he says, uh, Jesus, will you, will you show the Father to us? And Jesus responds this way, he says, Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long that you don't know who I am? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that just means that God's fathering or his fathery heart towards us is present, is visible in Jesus. So we're to think of him that way. We're gonna look at a familiar passage this morning that shows us that Jesus himself is worthy to take up that name. For our young disciples, our young Christians this morning, Uh, Just a couple uh, questions for you. Number one, the story we're about to read. Do you think the father in this story is a good father? Do you think the father in this story is a good father? And if so, what do you think makes him a good father? With that in mind, would you stand now for the reading of God's word? We're going to look at Luke chapter 15 verses 1 through 2 that kind of set the context. And then the story itself, a familiar parable in chapter 15, 11 through 32. God's word for us this morning. Starting in verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with tax collectors, and eats with them. Now verse 11, And he said, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, "'How many of my father's hired servants "'have more than enough bread, "'but I perish here with hunger. "'I will arise and go to my father, "'and I will say to him, Father, "'I have sinned against heaven and before you. "'I am no longer worthy to be called your son treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, "'Your brother has come.'" you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You pray for us this morning. Father, for many of us here this morning, this is a familiar story, familiar parable. We do pray that, that you would dislodge a level of familiarity that would keep us from listening well and hearing again what is so shocking in this story. And we pray, Father, that by hearing and listening to your love that's been given to us through your Son, that we might better understand your grace, your love for us, that in doing so, Father, that you would conform us more to yourself, more and more in the likeness of Jesus, our everlasting Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, just real quick, the first two verses of uh, Luke 15, the reason we read those, it's the setup for the parable. And not, not a complicated setup, and, and that setup, the tax collectors and the sinners, and you have to understand when you read it in the gospel, uh, those were categories of people categories of people who were scandalous, notorious, categories of people that everyone else thought were disqualified from being in any sort of relationship with God, and those were the very people that drew near to Jesus. They were the ones who were deeply attracted to him. They were the ones welcomed by Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes, that is the religious leaders, they were often repulsed by him, and they were particularly repulsed by this dynamic of Jesus claiming to be from God and yet finding himself in fellowship with these notorious sinners. So Jesus is telling this parable to reveal the hearts of three parties. In the parable, the sinners are represented by the younger son. The religious leaders are represented by the older son. Jesus and his ministry is represented by the father. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the father and the parable. So Jesus is fathering as a way to understand his heart and his ministry towards us, what Isaiah has promised he would be for us. Three things this morning. Number one, we're going to look at the fathering patience of Jesus, uh, provision, his fatherly provision, and then third, his promise. So fatherly patience, provision, and fatherly promise. Look at those three things in turn now. First, the provision. Look there with me in verse 11. The parable begins, of course, with the younger son asking for his share of his inheritance. He's asking for it, demanding it right now Um, while his father was still alive, which you may know was like treating his father as if he were already dead. He's basically telling his father, I want your stuff, but I don't want anything more to do with you. You are dead to me. It's a shocking way to open the story. It's surprisingly disrespectful. What would have been even more shocking to the original audience here is that the Father grants the request. He complies with the request. As one commentator writes, in a traditional ancient Near Eastern culture that was built on deference to authority it would have been expected for the father to respond to his son by driving him out of the family with physical blows. And in that case, the son would have gotten exactly what he deserved. But here's the first twist in the story. What the son deserves, the father absorbs into himself. The son deserves rejection. The son deserves loss of honor, the son deserves pain, but it's the father who absorbs all of that and who bears all of that. He bears rejection, he bears the loss of honor, he bears the pain because he loves his son. And the reason I just wanna point that out at the beginning is that when we're talking here about God's patience or Jesus' patience, the the word patience is not just waiting. It's not like he's just sort of waiting for something to happen or waiting for something to change or waiting there and doing nothing. Patience is the enduring of pain. And So if you read often in the Old Testament, for example, if you read other translations, patience is also translated as long-suffering. And here is the Father, here is Jesus' fathering as willing to long-suffer us. I'm gonna think about that for a moment. Some of you sitting there this morning have had to long suffer others for, you know, for a long time in your own life. But often when we do that, that is when we suffer someone else for a long time, someone who hurts us, what generally happens in our own heart is that our affection for that person slowly diminishes. So the suffering wears on us. It wears on us to the degree that sometimes we become embittered or cynical. Sometimes we'll just cut things off altogether. I don't know how many of you have seen the recurring Peanuts cartoon where Lucy continues to convince Charlie Brown to kick a football while she is holding it. And what happens every time is that he goes to kick the football and she pulls it away and he misses and somehow does two backflips and he falls on his face. We've all seen the cartoon, and we all know it's gonna happen every time. We know the pattern, but every time before it happens, I still whisper to myself, don't do it, Charlie Brown. Do not, she's gonna hurt you again. Do not trust her, and yet somehow he does it anyway. And he does it because something in him has not given up on Lucy. When I watch that, I think I'm the smart. When I've lost all hope for her, she doesn't deserve it. And I know that if I were him, all my affection for Lucy over all the days would be gone. She's used up all of her chances. There is no way that something in us does not think that that's true of how Jesus relates to us. He's smart. He's not naive. And so one day he's just going to say enough is enough. I'm not falling for it again. And yet look at the son's return in verse 20. After all the bad stuff, after days and weeks and months, maybe years of not coming home, verse 20 reads, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him You know it in the story, that is before the son could say anything to justify himself or apologize. The father runs to him, shamefully so. A patriarch would never hike up his own skirts and run out on the horizon, and he bear hugs him. And here it is, the father has fallen for him all over again. And what is clear is that the father has been scanning the horizon every day, never losing hope that his son will come back. And when he sees him, his affection is as strong as ever. He's not embittered, he's not cynical, he is persistent in hope, he is abiding in affection, and that is how Jesus wants you to think about him as your father. It's not just the crazy wild younger one that it applies to At the end of the story, it's true for the older son as well. At the end of the parable, what is revealed is that the older son's heart is really just like his younger brothers, totally different strategies. One stays near, one one goes away, same heart. They both want the father's stuff. They don't want the father. So at the end, the way that's revealed is that the, the older son won't go into the party, so he publicly dishonors and disgraces his father by staying out there and making his father run to him public humiliation, confrontation. Look, he says, he's been a good boy all of his life. And now underneath all of that goodness, his heart is revealed and how does their father respond? Son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. Absorbs the pain, persists in hope, abides in affection And so to every prodigal in the story, which by the way represents everybody and anyone near or far, when you come into contact with Jesus, you are coming into contact with one who will suffer you and who loves you more than you love him and who is not naive about it, but who is patient and who says to you, child, come home. That is the father's patience, second, his provision Let's look at what the father provides in the story for a moment. We can make a quick list. The big thing he provides is he provides an inheritance that's at the heart of the story. It's the family property or the family wealth. Heard someone say once that money doesn't make you happy, but it sure does keep your kids close. There seems to be that going on here. Second, for the younger son who practically returns naked and hungry and poor, The father provides for all that he's lost. He gets new clothes and new shoes and food. He gets a ring to adorn him. He he is making up for all that that son has squandered. And by the way, this didn't have to happen for this to be a good story. Then we get a celebration. Then we get a fattened calf in that culture that was a delicacy, the rarest of occasions. Then we get music and we get dancing, which means that the father has invited the entire village for the party. So imagine a wedding and imagine the father having to to write a, a check for that bill when it's all over. And the point of the parable, of course, is that the father provides. He provides for his family. He provides for his sons. But that is completely underselling it. Because what we have to remember when we're reading this story is that this was, to the original hearers, an offensive story, and its offensiveness was grounded in the fact that the Father is willing to provide as much as He does. It's offensive because of how lavish He is. He's not just generous, the Father is irrational, like beyond any law or code. Or reasonable expectation of wealth management. To get this story, you have to feel how crazy generous he is. And then you're supposed to turn around and say, this is exactly the way that Jesus wants me to understand his grace. And that is the point. The generosity of the heart of the Father in the parable is scandalous, and you and I are the object of that scandal. We are scandals of his grace. And just by way of contrast, the younger son gets all this wealth from his father. What does he do? He squanders it on himself, on his own pleasures. The older son gets all this wealth from his father. What does he do? He hoards it. He protects it for his own future. But the father, the father whose wealth rightfully belongs to him, who has a greater claim than either son he gives it away prodigiously and freely and he says, my son, all that is mine is yours. And listen to me, he says that when both of them are at their worst moments, without any notion that they've merited. it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not like us. He's not like you. We, we tend to make God into our own image, and to project our selfishness or our stinginess on him, he is better. He's better than you. He's better than me. And just to go a little bit further into his heart, look with me there at verse 12. In verse 12, the younger son says to his father, he says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And that word for property is the same word used in verse 13 for property. It's a a word for like stuff or capital or goods. But look at that second sentence in verse 12 when it's talking about the father. It says, and he divided his property between them. That word for property is different than the other two. It's weird. That word is the Greek word bios. And look, I know that we can make too much of a word but it is strange to have a word change. In, in, three, you know, in two verses, three times it's used. The word bios is where we get our word biology. You know what it means? It means life. So here's what we have. The son asked for his father's stuff. That's how he saw it. The father gave him his life. That's how he saw it. He didn't just divide his stuff. He divided his life for his son. I put it like this, he allowed his life to be torn for his son. And what we're seeing here is that he understands the depth of the cost way more than his son. So when the younger son returns home, and he's poor, and he's naked, and he's hungry, what does the father do? He clothes him, right? But what does he clothe him with? The best robe, his robe. Shoes, the best shoes, his shoes his ring, those things represented the father's life. Not only was his life torn apart for the son, but when that child came home, his father recovered his son with his life. And that just tells us what Jesus does for us in the gospel. Our everlasting father, it's not just that he will give you more stuff than you can imagine, it's that he gives you his life. He gives you his life torn apart for you on the cross, his life torn for your sin. He covers you with the glory of that same life, his righteousness, so that all that he has is yours. And the best way I think that the Bible from, from gosh, from, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, the best way that the Bible knows how to describe this sort of generosity to us, this excessive provision over and over and over again is as a feast one that is hosted and one that is provided for by Jesus one that represents his life finally the promise it's the promise in the story here's the great promise of the story the promise is that the way you encounter this father in the story who represents Jesus the promise is that he will not change he won't change It's there in the story. If you notice, the the affections and the attitudes of the sons change, but the father is the same throughout. He is unchanged by how they treat him. So he is steady. He is reliable. He is, in a word, everlasting. And friends, I would just tell you this morning that if you belong to him, that you can know that no matter how you feel or whether you feel it or not, that he is the same, that Jesus never has a bad day towards you. He doesn't have a bad day. He is everlasting. But you also need to know what this promise means for your response. How does the story end? The story ends unfinished, right? Um, It's directed to the Pharisees and the scribes. They're angry and resentful towards Jesus. And they have at the end of the story what? This standing invitation to come back to him. And yet we are never told what they choose. So that that invitation is open-ended, that choice is also held out to us. And the question becomes, will anyone come into the life of Jesus? And what does that involve? Well, think about it. If the older brother goes back inside, he does have to go back on a condition that he will go back and live in his father's home. And so he goes back to live under his authority That's important because all the names that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah 9-6 to describe who Jesus will be for you, they are all names of authority. Wonderful what? Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Enjoying the goodness of the Messiah will come with trusting the authority of the Messiah. Because why? There is no feast outside of his home. There's no feast outside of his home. In his home is bias, it is life, it is his rule, it is his yoke. And I want to close this morning by sharing these words by a, a famous Scottish, I said famous, I don't know that you've ever heard of him. His name's William Still. He had a small church actually, but a famous preacher. Um, he was Scottish and I have no doubt that he sounded better than I'm going to sound when I read this. And I'm not going to try to do it in a Scottish accent, but I'm going to read what he said. He says this, he says, I had been going at it one Sunday evening, that is code for preaching, going at it. I had been going at it one Sunday evening about living your whole life in Christ and for Christ and one chap, one guy, because he thought that meant that he must live his life on his knees. He came to me, wringing his hands because he was not being as holy as he thought he ought to be. And I said to him, you foolish boy. I love that. I'm going to try that sometime. You foolish boy. Do you think this means screwing yourself up into a kind of robot existence, forever clicking your heels before a ruthless Sergeant Major Christ? Is that what you think? And still said, you have it all wrong. Excuse me. He said, Christ is a world of being, not a set of rules. You live your life in Him, you are naughty in Him, you are good in Him, you have fun in Him, there is seriousness in Him. You must learn, he said, that Christ is no mere censor but a savior who saves us by gaining our trust and confidence more and more and letting us live out our total life in him. Jesus is a world of being. He is a world of being. A counselor, a prince, a mighty God. He is everlasting father. He is a feast unto himself. And he he calls you back home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have described yourself to us and this story in such a way that makes it really hard um, to believe your generosity. You're better than us. And you love us more than we love you. You love us more than we love ourselves. And Father, we pray that you would give us faith to trust your authority as our Father because of the links you've gone to to absorb the cost of bringing us home. Would you increase faith in us, joy in you, even as we come to the table now and are presented once again with your feast. I pray in Christ's name, amen. thanks for listening. To find out more about Covenant, please visit covenantpres dot com.